Well, I'm going to introduce Jonathan to come up onto stage. And uh, just as he comes, uh, Jonathan was working in Parliament. He was an advisor along with his wife, Grace. And uh, they were involved in work opposing legislation regarding euthanasia, drug reform, and abortion. He has a postgraduate degree in politics and theology. And he speaks around various churches around the place. And last year we had Jonathan come and speak just before, I think it was a week or two before the elections. And he spoke about uh, Christians becoming engaged in the election process and uh, just not just looking at it as being something that we uh, aren't involved in, but as individuals becoming more more engaged in it and uh, aware of it and thinking about it. Uh, and it was a fantastically challenging and uh, enjoyable night. And uh, I certainly had a lot to think about uh, just in the weeks that followed and kind of chewing over stuff and processing stuff and that. Uh, and I've asked Jonathan to come back and speak not about politics, but speak as a believer in Christ and that. So uh, Jonathan is here. Uh, sadly, Grace, his wife, is just completing her master's. And uh, it is master's, eh? Not yeah, master's. And so she's doing the final write-up in it before she submits it tomorrow, probably correcting a whole bunch of stuff and freaking out, you know, that last-minute kind of got-to-get-it-done kind of situation. So sadly, she can't be with us, but at some point I'm sure she will. So I'm going to hand over to Jonathan. Please... Uh, don't forget to uh, be encouraging, and if you like what he's saying, nod your head, smile. You might even say, yeah, that's great, you know. Over to you. Thank you very much, Pastor Dean. Yes, um, I grew up in Mozambique where there's a lot of call and response. Just imagine I'm an African-American preacher, and we've got to kind of feel each other in the soul here. So this is more of a conversation than anything else. Um, it is a great pleasure to join with you guys all again uh, here today. How many of you here managed to make it last year when I came and spoke? Uh, there's a few people that I recognize you. I'm sure the rest of you were very busy on that evening. That's why you didn't come. But it's great that um, you're here today. As Pastor Dean mentioned, uh, I get to travel around uh, speaking quite frequently. And recently, my wife and I have left parliaments. One of the reasons for that is so that uh, we might be able to do that a little bit more. And this is one of the greatest uh, honors of my life. Not least because um, there are many people here who have walked with the Lord and have much more wisdom than I have. Uh, so it's a privilege to, as a young person, get to stand and speak. But far more importantly, it is the greatest privilege of my life because I get to cradle the great riches, the glorious treasure that is the gospel. And I hope that each one of us, as we come today, we, we, we come hungry. We don't come out of culture. We don't come out of, out of just this is what we do on Sundays. We come like that bleeding woman, desperate for a touch of the Lord. If I can just touch the hem of his robe, I know I'll be clean. And, and I think it's very easy for us to, uh, to just get in patterns, and patterns aren't bad. But let's not let that become, uh, you know, 
disregarding of the privilege it is to join together under the name of Christ and worship him today. I grew up in Mozambique where uh, my parents were missionaries for 20 years. I grew up in a very, very rural part of the country. It was the poorest part of the country, uh, poorest country in the world rather, when my parents moved there in the 90s. And uh, we were in the poorest part of the poorest country. And then I was educated in Kenya. And I moved back to New Zealand uh, to study at university seven years ago. I met my wife at Parliament where she was also working and now we live in the Wairarapa. Where I grew up, um, the literacy rate was 2%. 2% of the people could read. And so because of that, um, oral traditions and stories um, were, were what were usually used to convey messages. And so... Um, I want to. I kind of want to share from that today. I, I have an African parable that I want to share with you, and then we're just going to dig into uh, that and, and a little scripture. So, I, I love writing, and uh, and this is kind of where I want to start us today. The last rays of sunlight danced joyously, glistening off the lapping waves as the men pulled their canoes onto the sun-warmed sandy beach. They were tired by the day's fishing, but content with another day's good catch. Their families would be well-fed tonight, and the men would be able to rest. The woman of the village came down to the water's edge to greet the men, and together they walked back up into their homes. Happy greetings and laughter filled the air as the stories from the day's happenings were exchanged, and the stillness of dusk fell. A gentle breeze tossed the palm trees, and the, wind ro or the moon rose brightly, replacing the burning African sun. This was La Paradis. La Paradis was ruled over by a gracious king who was good and kind. He had ruled over the people longer than anyone could remember, and he brought only happiness and peace to the land. Unlike other kings who lorded over their subjects and treated them harshly, the king served his people and was humble and loving. Because the king was so good, he had and needed only one rule. The king had a precious daughter, his only living relative. She was the most beautiful woman in all the land, and like her father, was full of goodness. The king's one rule was that none should ever mistreat his daughter. If they did, they would surely die. Thus, as it was in La Paradia, a village of harmony and goodwill, there lived an orphan boy called Kamal. Kamal was a hate-filled boy, lustful, greedy, selfish, conceited, inconsiderate, and proud. And although all the villagers treated Kamal kindly, he was nothing short of detestable. Many tried to care for Kamal, to gently touch his heart with kindness. Yet it seemed that even if he wanted to change, he was enslaved to the brokenness his life had known. A victim of his past, he became a perpetrator of its future. One day, as Kamal walked past the king's palace, filled pointlessly and uncontrollably with mindless rage at the happiness and peace that surrounded him and the contentment in which the people lived, he took a large rock and threw it at a beautiful stained glass window. At that very same moment, the king's daughter stopped to admire the stained glass mesmerized by the beauty of the window as the sunlight flooded through. The glass shattered before her, and the large stone struck her. A loud cry split the silence as the king rushed to the side of his precious daughter. As the king knelt beside his daughter's body, he brokenheartedly gave the order for Kamal to be brought to him. 
Not out of hate or anger did he send the guards, but the law had to be kept. The loud beating of batuka drums drew the people out of their huts as Kamal was brought to the center of the village. The crowd gathered round, frightened by the shattering of the peace they had known. The king sat above the crowd on his throne as Kamal was tied to an acacia tree, its protruding thorns sharper than razors. His bare body was wrapped gently around the tree, but the beating would slap the thorns into him. The warriors raised the hippo hide that they would use to beat him and looked to the king for the signal. Silence filled the crowd. The sound of the very tear that fell from the king's eyes could be heard as it landed at his feet. Slowly, the king stood and began to walk down the stairs of his throne. He walked amongst the crowd who, in awed silence, watched their king. He walked towards the tree to which Kamal was tied with each step, taking off his sandals to walk in the dust, taking off his royal robes, taking off his crown. When he reached the tree, he took Kamal and wrapped himself tightly around him, and loudly he ordered the beating to begin. The warriors, stunned at the king's orders, paused, yet understanding his uh, his command, swung forcefully. The guards brought blow after blow, trying to hit Kamal, but the king held him. He held him so tightly, he wrapped himself so completely around Kamal that with every swing, the king's bare skin was torn into the thorns. Thrown and tearing Yet Kamal remained unscathed. With every blow, the king cried out, piercing the silence, yet they were not cries of anguish or pain. No, with every blow, the king cried out more and more intensely, My son, I love you, my son, I love you. After some time, the beating stopped. And the king's limp and lifeless body fell to the ground. And the crowd, awed for a moment, began to depart, understanding that the price had been paid. Once everyone had left, Kamal stood. And he walked away from the tree, the sound forever echoing in his ears. The love of the king had urged him to pay the price, and at the death of his precious daughter, he had forgiven her murderer, and made him his son. As I said, I was educated in Kenya, and the local tribe where I was being educated was the Kikuyu tribe. While there, I was uh, adopted of sorts into a local Kikuyu family, and I was given a new name. And my Kikuyu name was Kamal. This is my story. And it's only too clear to me And I'm sure to you as well that I do not come able or sufficient or adequate. I come in desperate need of the Lord. Knowing the depths of the wickedness of my heart, I must echo along with Christ's disciples asking, how then can anyone be saved? But as Paul said, praise be to the Lord Jesus who delivers me. Truly, my friends, What manner of love is this? 
that we should be called sons of God. This is my story, the story of a derelict, broken young man who by grace, glorious, unsurpassable, indispensable, costly grace has been saved. And it makes me think of the numbers of those that surround me, the numbers of those that may be here today who too are in need of grace. Two kilometers off the coast of southeastern Africa, connected to the mainland of Mozambique by a single lane bridge with broken down railings and cracks in the paving, is a low-lying island, three kilometers long and several hundred meters wide. It's called the Ilha de Mozambique. This island, once the capital of colonial Mozambique, is a tourist hotspot and was a frequent feature in my idyllic childhood. The white beaches, the aqua blue water, the trendy cafes all made me feel as if I had somehow stepped off the pages of a travel magazine or a holiday brochure. Yet this island has not always resembled the paradise I perceived it to be as a child. At the furthest point of the island, there stands an imposing legacy to its darker past, the fortress of Saint Sebastian. Like the shadow that is cast by this enduring edifice as the searing African sun sets over the mainland, its shadow also persists in the soul of this island. From this fort, an estimated 2.2 million slaves were loaded onto Portuguese vessels and Arab dows. Most of them headed seemingly to the end of the world, the plantations of the Western Hemisphere. In Brazil, they would toil during their short and miserable lives under the weight of ultimately unbearable oppression as they worked to increase the wealth of the plantation owners and through them establish Europe more and more and its affluence, prosperity, and power. Some may not have considered it appropriate for our day trips from our rural mud-fired brick home to the beach to include another tour around the fortress of Saint Sebastian. Yet ever keen to impress our visitors with our very own local UNESCO World Heritage Site, I cannot help the time, account the times I translated for our guests, recounting the stories told by the tour guide. Stories of kidnap and confinement, of rape and torture, of separation, of loneliness and sorrow, stories of death. The history and legacy of colonialism and slavery was an ever-present ghost accompanying our everyday lives in Mozambique. The seemingly immortal offspring of the imposition of one purportedly superior culture over another. And I say immortal because while the work of William Wilberforce and his heroic colleagues in the 19th century may have initiated the start of what would be the end of the international slave trade, and although the courageous efforts of Mozambican rebels dispelled the Portuguese colonialists in the 1960s, and despite the admirable intents of the international community to support this burgeoning democratic state, I say immortal because the state of slavery still exists. Shackles and bonds that encircled the throats and legs of African men and women those many years ago still bind their lives. And while the white European was the perpetrator of slavery during the 17th and 18th century, their souls did not escape the deadly fount from which the enslavement of the human body springs, the enslavement of the human soul. 
Jesus says in John 8, 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Contrary to the common narrative that we hear in our society today, which says, well, I may not be perfect, but no one is, and I'm still a good person. If we have fallen short of the moral standard that we know in our hearts to be true, then we are not good people who sometimes just don't quite make it. We are slaves. And we know this is true. We look at the lives of those that surround us. We look at our own lives. We look at the cycles of brokenness and suffering that we see in our families and in our communities. And I ask you, is there any other word that we can use than slavery? Slaves to the choices we don't want to make, but always seem to. Slaved by an inability to shake off the pain that we were victims of. So like Kamal, we become its perpetrator. Slaves to the uh, hatred and resentment we cannot overcome. Enslaved by the lies that we have so long accepted as undeniable truth that they bind our hearts and minds. D.A. Carson, an American theologian, writes, We are not only a created race, but a fallen race. The fall is not merely the breaking of some arbitrary rule. It is the rebellion of the creature against the creator. It is the appalling commitment to try and absorb the creator's, creator's place. The astonishing, arrogant, and futile cry, I will be God. In reality, issues not only in death, but in the destruction of every relationship. Death itself is multifaceted. We die to God. We die physically. We die the second death. Consumed by our own self-focus, we desire to dominate and manipulate others. Here is the beginning of fences, of rape, of greed, of malice, of nurtured bitterness, and of war. Can you disagree with me? Can you look at your own life, the lies of your ancestors, the story of mankind, and tell me that we are free and powerful and right, that humanity is good to itself and good to those around it? You may try, but our environment disagrees. The history of New Zealand disagrees. Our tamariki and prisons and suicide levels disagree. We are not free. And we are fools, enslaved fools, to claim we are. As Jesus said, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Who's glad they came to church today? Nothing like a bit of light encouragement for a Sunday afternoon. Yet right before these words were spoken, Christ had spoken a greater truth than the truth that we are all, like Mozambicans torn from our homeland, slaves to brokenness. Christ declared these liberating words. If you abide in me and in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. He went on to say, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. To be free, is that not what we all 
desire. Is that not what we have all, always desired? In the thirst for freedom, wars have been fought and alliances formed and the greatest of efforts and missions undertaken. I speak simply to two people here today, to those who have been set free from the enslavement of sin and death and to those who are yet held in its bonds. To those who do not know the chain-breaking, tomb-quaking, lie-shaking freedom of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, I call you to hear these words. There is freedom for you. There is life like you have not imagined and liberty that you have not known through the grace of our very own good King. Do not dwell in slavery. Do not remain in the darkness of lies in the chains of fears, in the prison of death, when the glories of truth and peace and life are set before you. At the beginning of last year, I flew to Melbourne for a handful of nights. Yes, that was back in the day of international travel, long past. While I flew there, I watched a film on the plane that depicted the life of Harriet Tubman, the black woman once slave turned slave liberator. Her life like her parents before her and grandparents before them, had been defined by slavery and oppression, denied the liberty that they were created to enjoy, denied the purpose they were created to pursue, denied the truth that they were allowed to know, that God meant us to be free. Harriet Tubman became what was known as a conductor on the Underground Railroad, a network of houses that led slaves from bondage in the south to freedom in the north. Yet at the end of her life, she claimed this, I freed a thousand slaves. I could have freed a thousand more if they had only known they were slaves. My friends, do not dwell in despondency and destitution when the full life of the free is on offer. Do not wait Come while the grace of the Lord still calls for the broken and needy. In not a single way can I claim to be better than anyone here. I too have nothing to rely upon but the liberating grace of my God who called into the dullness of my heart. My son, I love you, my son. Tubman also said, speaking of her enslaved kindred, I have heard their groans and sighs and seen their tears, and I would give every drop of blood in my veins to free them. Christ, too, with greater anguish and pain, set himself knowingly on a path which would cost him everything. Truly, the cross is too lofty a symbol too horrific a means, and too costly a price, and too glorious a victory for us to ever understand its true depths. We must simply come to its foot and allow grace to set us free. And now the second person I speak to today, those who indeed know the liberation of Christ, hopefully that is all of us. As the Lord spoke at the commencement of his ministry, we too must say, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. As the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. There is a well-known Māori whakatauki that says this, He aha te mea nui o te ao, he tangata, he tangata, he tangata. What is the most important thing in the world? It is people. It is people. It is people. When sight of the intrinsic, inextricable, inestimable value of the individual is lost, we as humanity lose our most basic reference point. Despite all that divides and separates, our default setting of care and concern must be towards the individual. For this is what truly matters. People, people, people. The expansive mosaic of humanity in all its colors and shades and hues is made up of but a single thread of an individual woven together with another's. And I am dreadfully concerned that our church at times forgets this, that we forget what defined our Lord's ministry, profound concern for the individual, for the cast out, for the lonely. This is something that concerns my own heart, something I do not pay attention to enough. And I was several years ago reading the biography of the missionary Hudson Taylor, one of the first missionaries to go into mainland China, and found myself so broken just weeping at one of the passages in his book. I want to read it to you. He was going up the river with a Chinese Christian convert of his, but he wasn't sure if this man had really accepted Christ. They were going up the river, and he had gone under, uh, the, the, the fishermen will know what I'm talking about, I don't know, into the, into the ship, under the bow, I think. Um, and he heard a splash, and the Chinese man had fallen overboard. Hudson quickly came to the top of the boat and looked around trying to find him, but couldn't see him. There was another boat over, and he cried out. He said, did you see where this man fell down? And they cried out, yes. It was over there he went down. And Hudson writes, to drop the sail and jump into the waters was the work of but a moment, yet the tide was running out, and lo, and the shrublish shore afforded little landmark. Searching everywhere in agony of suspense, Taylor caught sight of some fishermen and said, quick, drop your net. Come, drag through here. A man is drowning. This Ben was their amazing reply. It is not convenient. Don't talk to me of convenience, Hudson said. Quickly, come, or it will be too late. We are busy fishing, they replied. Never mind your fishing. Come, only come at once. I will pay you well. How much will you give us, they asked. I will give you all that I have. Only come quickly. Upon this they came, and the first time they passed the net through the water, they brought up the missing man. But all Taylor's efforts to revive him were in vain. It was only too plain, he writes, that life had fled, sacrificed to the callous indifference of those who might easily have saved it. And Hudson asks, could it be anywhere on earth people were found to be so utterly uncaring and selfish? But the spirit prodded and conviction struck. Is the body then worth so much more than the value of a soul? We may condemn these fishermen rightly. We say they are guilty of the man's death. 
because they could easily have saved him and did not do so. But what then of the thousands in our lives, the millions we leave to perish, and at that, eternally? How is it, I wonder, that we pay so willingly the exorbitant price of eternity for convenience? It is simply too inconvenient to proclaim good news to the poor. It is simply too bothersome to proclaim liberty to the captive. It is simply too tiresome to set at liberty those who are oppressed. So in our beautiful houses and comfortable lives and grace-purchased freedom, how many of us forget the kindred we have left in chains? I tell you, my friends, as C.S. Lewis writes, Christ did not come into this world to make bad men good. Christ came into this world to make dead men live. Romans 5 tells us that yet while we were enslaved to the bondage of sin and death, Christ made a way. Yet while we were his enemies, Christ died. Yet while I heaped damnation upon damnation upon my soul, utterly indifferent to the call and love of Christ, he sought me out and he set me free. My friends, I can testify today, he who the Son sets free is free indeed. And we are all called with this freedom to become liberators. I beg you, do not allow the corrosive ease of comfort and convenience to enslave you again into a far worse state than those you were called to set free. Convenience, my friends, is exceedingly overrated, and comfort is never what it's cracked out to be. In the name of self-protection and advancement, we embrace a poison chalice of indifference and apathy. But let us never consider the cross to be worth so little. Let us never consider the cries of the lost to be so far. And let us never consider the grace of our Lord to be so impotent as to set free any captive. Let us leave today and live every day with an ever-deepening joy and thankfulness for the freedom we know in Christ. And from that foundation of that freedom and life, let us speak as Moses, to the forces of darkness that wage war around us. My God has sent me to tell you, let my people go. John 8, 31 to 36. If you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we are offsprings of Abraham, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house, but the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. As I finish, I wonder if uh, the music team can join me. And I ask if you are able, would you mind standing? I want to pray a benediction over us as we go from here. So stand now as, as we just draw to an end. And if you feel comfortable, place yourself in a physical place of receiving this. My friends, this is a Sunday like no other. Paul writes, do you not know today is the day of salvation? 
And I pray that each one of us would go from here not having come and caught up with friends and sung some nice songs, but that we will have come and known liberating truth. Truth that changes our hearts, truth that changes our lives, truth that turns us into life-giving founts of living water. I pray that the abiding, that abiding in the word of our Father, knowing his transformative, liberating love, each one of us would go in the knowledge of the truth and the freedom that this truth brings. I pray that the captivating light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ would, drift, would lift our drooping hands and strengthen our weak knees and that each one of us would continue to push hard into the things of God for our lives. That like Caleb and Joshua who spied out a land ready to be taken for the Lord, we too would be able to say, our God is well able to deliver us. I pray that we, his body, would not be shaken or moved knowing that his purposes for us are good and that his promises in time are all yes and amen. For truly greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than what we could ever ask or imagine according to his power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and to Christ Jesus throughout all generations. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with each one of us now and forevermore. Amen. Thanks, Jonathan. That was fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. If you would like prayer after the service, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you haven't given him first place in your life, come and talk to someone. I'll be here down the front, elders around, there's life group leaders. Just ask anyone in the building and they will point you in the right place. Don't leave here if Jesus is not first in your life. Don't leave here without him first in your life. It's, uh, it's absolutely vital. There's nothing more important in this world than living for the reason you were created, which is for God. So I'll pray him. I'll hand back to the band. And uh, don't forget, take God out from here. Don't keep him a secret. Let him shine through your lives, in your workplace, your schools, your universities, wherever you are. Carry God in front so others can see him. Father, I thank you, Lord, for every single person here. Thank you for that message. Thank you for the stirring, sobering message that came this morning. May we burn, may we care about our fellow man and woman. May we bleed and weep for them. May we care enough to speak to them, to share with them your love. We commit this week to you. Be with every single person that's leaving here. Go with them. In Jesus' name.